0: Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are continuing to read Hinterland, America's New Landscape of Class and Conflict by Phil A. Neal. We are still in the midst of Chapter 3, entitled Iron City, and we're beginning a new segment within that chapter entitled Sunbelts. But before we do that, I would like to ask people to please share a link to this episode on whichever social media platform you may frequent. I would like to remind people that we put these episodes out on a daily basis on SoundCloud. Po- uh, Pocket Cast, Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Facebook, anywhere audio is available. The Rafa Reading Daily podcast series series is also available. Okay, let's dive in. Sun belts. The patterns observed in American cities, though distinct, are not exclusively American. There are many rust belts in the world, just as there are many quote brain hubs end quote. The latter, in particular. Tend to be remarkably homogeneous, with each financial district a hollow, gilded clone of those that came before, and each hip neighborhood populated by clean, sans-serif storefronts, exposed steel, and bare wood countertops. Every now and then, a dive bar left over from the district's last incarnation. In these trend-setting cultural cores, each shop sells objects and services that differ greatly in their detail, despite being essentially the same commodity. Quote, Creativity, end quote, as a lifestyle designation, delivered not via the specific use of the item, but instead in the general application of, quote, artisanal, end quote, character to a necessarily multivariate series of nonsensical products and services. It does not much matter if these districts are in Berlin, Shanghai, or Mexico City. The same is true of a third urban dynamic. The rise of global sun belts for manufacturing, logistics, and, a, and an array of bottom rung post-industrial end quote, services, such as call centers, new low-level digital work on click farms, or piecemeal programming outsourced to places like Hyderabad. Here again, the parallels are remarkable. My first time living in China in 2012 was spent in the southwest, largely in newly developed provincial capitals like Kunming. Kunming, and Naning, which had exploded in size with the post-crisis stimulus, funding the construction of subways, highways, and high-speed rail, all of which was followed by a real estate boom sprawling past the outskirts of such cities in anticipation of new waves of industrial investment that, to this day, have failed to live up to expectations. In later years, I would move from the southwest to the southern coast, spending time in Guangzhou, Shenzhen, and Hong Kong, the three major economic centers of the Pearl River Delta, in the years after the wave of factory closures that followed the last global crisis. These cities were at the center of China's own early export-oriented sunbelt, constructed in the same years as the rise of its American counterpart in the southern states and exhibiting a surprisingly similar geography of decentralized sprawl. The only difference is one of scale with the American single-family unit or modest European high-rise replaced in this case by, by, by gargantuan residential towers. Of all Chinese cities, Shenzhen stands out in this regard, since its development has been almost entirely concurrent with the opening of China to the global economy. Once nothing more than marshland surrounding a moderately sized market town, Shenzhen was designated China's first special economic zone in 1980. It quickly became one of the industrial powerhouses of China's Pearl River Delta and then one of the fastest-growing cities in the world. At first, industrial centers agglomerated around major access zones to Hong Kong, which was both an important source of capital and the primary gateway to global markets. Migrants flooded into cheap, hastily built, quote, urban villages, end quote, in places like Nanshan to work in factories and workshops near the Shiku port. Soon rising real estate prices, soon rising real estate prices pushed industry outward as places with closer proximity to the border became new service and financial centers, as well as settlement zones for wealthier foreigners. Once rural townships and villages further north were able to attract increasing amounts of capital to build new factories and extensive infrastructure. As migrant workers flooded into such, quote, villages, end quote, The original peasants' land holdings were effectively converted into shares within local capital projects. Meanwhile, massive skyscrapers were built along the border in Luhu, the Shenzhen Stock Exchange was opened in centrally located Futayan, and hip bars, art galleries, and boutiques were opened in both the foreigner-friendly overseas Chinese town and within the redeveloped Shiku. Shenzhen and its urban rail system soon grew to encompass a number of other municipalities as more labor-intensive industry was pushed further and further out, driven by the early success of the liberalized township and village enterprises. But instead of a single, widening ring of industry followed by an expanding core of more affluent residential zones and service centers, the sprawl of the city was inherently uneven. New factories sprung up over paddy fields, and agriculture itself grew more intensive as it became more thoroughly integrated into the new industrial infrastructure, which provided unprecedented access to both domestic and international markets. Some areas were simply abandoned or sold off by peasant tenants, left undeveloped, partially developed, or specifically designated as zones for greenery or marshland, often in conjunction with large residential projects wanting to sell their units with a guarantee of, quote, natural, end quote, amenities to appeal to the upperly mobile middle class. After the financial financial crisis, even many of the newer industrial zones farther out from the urban cores were upgraded to capital intensive, high tech production, with the more labor-intensive work in the supply chain mostly located at the very end of the subway system in new administrative districts like Lungua, far to the north of the original border factories. Traveling toward Lunguna, one is not at first struck by the industrial character of the city, but instead by its greenery. Just beyond the bounds of the more affluent downtown cores, new residential complexes encircle shopping malls selling knockoff name brands, to the lower-wage, white-collar workers who can no longer afford to live in the central districts. Behind these are often large swaths of green space intercut every now and then by some anonymous industrial facility, which then gradually opens again onto more sprawling industrial districts in the city's far north, which tend to be centered on railroads, railroad stations and major business parks housing the factories of large employers like Foxconn, where the iPhone is manufactured. The striking part of all this is how decentralized the city is, a phenomenon that that locals and scholars soon began to refer to as, quote, rural-urban integration, end quote. Traveling farther up towards neighboring Dongguan, small patches of agriculture alternate with undeveloped or abandoned Martian jungle, into which are dropped seemingly random clusters of gleaming white apartment towers, shopping malls, dance clubs, factories, warehouses, brothels, and so on. Outside of its several downtown cores and largest expanses of logistics and industrial activity, much of Shenzhen and the greater Pearl River Delta are simply hard to define as either urban or rural at all. Areas of Martian jungle may have once been factories or rice paddies, now abandoned as the village was converted into a shareholder corporation managing the sale of industrial sites or residential units on a fraction of the old agricultural collectives' land. In other areas, the greenery might be entirely transplanted for the express purpose of creating a desirable landscape for ex-urban residents. Rather than attempting to pin down what exactly is the proper outer border of such a city. It makes more sense simply to acknowledge that the old categories of urban, suburban, and rural may simply have less explanatory power for the contemporary capitalist city than they once had. Instead, we can define clear islands of affluence encircled by a near hinterland composed of identifiable industrial logistics expanses that gradually fade into a farther hinterland of agriculture, black markets, and half abandoned fields, factories, and forests. And then that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. So let's have a reflection. So in that passage, Phil a. Neal did the did the job of illustrating how the how the urban and rural landscape in China is changing with, with gentrification in, in some senses and the passages we read before this or in the previous episodes sort of talked about what that gentrification looks like in cities. and talks about this sort of inverse, this inverse action of the, white people or the more affluent people who once lived on the outskirts of cities because they were trying to escape the people who were moving to the inside cities, to the inner cities. How now you can see these inner cities changing and these urban cities changing and and redeveloping and people now moving back within those cities as the landscape changes and the people who were once inside some of these inner cities or some of these urban cores now moving to the periphery uh and moving to the to the suburbs and even he spoke about sometimes if people aren't moving and if some of the more people of affluence aren't moving into the city or moving in deeper into the urban portion of this of a city or to the yeah to the urban Urban portion of the city If people aren't moving into the city Some people are now moving even further out into these exurbs And now in this The passages that we just read in the beginning of this episode He spoke about what that looks like in China And how these Some of these same Some of these same uh, What's the word I'm looking for How some of these same cycles have manifested themselves In other areas And I think it does a good job of of reminding us the, the global connections that exist in these issues that we're speaking about. Okay, let's move on to the next segment. Sprawl. There was, then, a certain familiarity here. Despite the humid heat punctuated by the brief respite of typhoon rains, the feeling that I got traversing the Pearl River Delta was much the same as that felt much the same as the feeling crossing the Inland Empire on the way to Los Angeles with this massive patchwork of alternating industrial and residential corridors finally giving way to a coastal hub for finance and the, quote, creative, end quote, industries. The same capitalist imperatives that built Shenzhen have also driven every stage of urbanization in U.S. cities, after all. And it shouldn't be surprising that the urban structure of Los Angeles, Houston, Texas, or other sunbelt metropolises roughly mirror those of their Chinese counterparts. Sprawl is the general tendency of capitalist urbanization. In a completely unconstrained environment, an ascendant city would ripple outward. The early industrial core redeveloped into a spectacular downtown, ringed by ever-receding, ever-shortening ridges of economic activity that, at the utmost frontier— finally fall away to nothing more than a gently quivering emptiness. But constraints exist, and they are fundamental to the forces driving urbanization in the first place. Some belts become rust belts. Competition leads to the rise of new technologies that drive the growth of new industrial cores. And physical geography wields unquestionable influence on the location of industry and living space. Thus, every city tends to sprawl and collapse in its own unique way. Without any zoning laws to speak of, Houston, like Shenzhen, is capable of rapid change in response to market imperatives. It therefore approximates the general tendency in ways that other cities do not. Where countervailing factors are strongest, cities will either tend to hyper-aggregate or hollow out, even while they sprawl. Most coastal cities, alongside a few inland brain hubs, are able to cohere around relatively large downtown cores. San Francisco represents the apex of this trend, with the city's interior slums almost entirely eliminated, leaving the poor to a scattering of small, rent-controlled leftovers, the rest made to wander homeless through the corridors of multi-million dollar condominiums. But this is only possible when economic, historical, physical, and serendipitous factors all combine to ensure the upward mobility of the city, and this lasts only as long as the industrial boom that undergirds it. The Rust Belt cities represent the opposite constraint, with Detroit a mirror image inversion version of San Francisco. But most other cities have had less success than the coastal hubs and have also not suffered the same kind of multi-decade decline as the manufacturing powerhouses of the Northeast. As automobile factories were closing in St. Louis, Detroit, and Cleveland, new factories were being opened in cheaper, quote, right to work, end quote, states like Alabama, South Carolina, Texas, and Georgia. Similar dynamics were evident in cities across the Southwest and into the heartland. Industrial industrial behemoths like Boeing began to decentralize their supply chains, closing down production units in Seattle, only to reopen them in Southern California, Kansas, and South Carolina. Population followed as outflow from the Northeast and Midwest was matched by moderate growth in the West and a population explosion across the, quote, New South, end quote. It is this period of reindustrialization, accompanied by a new oil boom, that has driven the growth of sprawling cities in the South and Southwest. The geography of these cities can be best characterized not simply as a wealthy core interacting with the poor periphery, but instead as an archipelago of wealthy islands rising above an ocean of industrial sprawl. Cheap land and cheap labor are the major imperatives shaping such industrial urban development. Sprawl is not the direct goal of any of the firms or government bodies involved, nor is it a particularly efficient outcome produced by the supposed rationalizing power of the market. Sprawl is instead an ancillary effect of these driving imperatives, as the lateral extension of the city becomes much more lucrative than dense. Vertical agglomerations. As new industrial facilities relocate to the region, new rings of infrastructure and working-class settlement ripple outward into the deserts, swamps, and humid forests of the Sun Belt. At its most extreme, the city is exploded into tens or even hundreds of small cores and strips centered on logistics hubs and, co- and corridors, housing developments, or geographical amenities. In some cases, this means extremely low density, as in Houston. In others, relatively high density is retained via large numbers of mid-sized, multi-unit complexes, but the overall effect is the same. This is the case in Los Angeles and the Inland Empire, an extremely suburban complex with weak urban cores compared to New York and Chicago, but one which nonetheless ranks as the city in the United States with either the highest or second highest population density. This is because dense suburbs combine with the relatively under-aggregated urban core to drive the average upwards. The conclusion to be drawn from this is blasphemy for most urban planners, but the fact remains. Sprawl and density are simply not opposed. Meanwhile, entirely new cores often accrete within the sprawl itself. Houston is a case in point. According to the regular Houston area survey conducted by Rice University, quote, Houston can actually be said to have five to eight downtowns and 18 centers of activity, end quote. These centers include not only hubs within the urban core or just logistic hubs in the surrounding industrial suburbs, but new mid-level centers of activity in places like the Woodlands and Sugar Land, once almost exclusively residential freeway suburbs spawned by post-war interstate construction. Many suburbs in American cities have attracted their own large, central mixed-use development projects in order to advertise themselves as attractive, urbanized places, and even in cities as auto-centric as Houston and Los Angeles, such development has also been accompanied by, often successful, attempts to extend light rail systems and other public transit out to these new centers. Rather than countervailing factors, these many competition-driven contradictions are the driving force of sprawl. And the formation of new cores is simply yet another episode in the long history of capitalist urbanization though newly constructed chinese cities might today typify the ideal it was in america after all that the truly capitalist city was inaugurated the traditional tight-knit urban cores of european cities were largely inherited from pre-capitalist patterns of medieval urbanization which then experienced population growth correlated to the rise of mercantile regimes in the 17th and 18th centuries, all of which gave the early capitalist era in Europe a pre-made set of urban centers originally designed to serve very different economic imperatives. Though older American cities, beginning as second-order entrepots for Europe, inherited some of this character, the vast majority of major U.S. metropolitan areas today were inaugurated and developed according to the imperatives of an explicitly capitalist market. Chicago, St. Louis, the Twin Cities, Minneapolis and St. Paul, Minnesota, and other Middle American and Midwestern centers, alongside a spare few centers on the West Coast such as San Francisco and early Los Angeles, formed their cores when technological limits to urban expansion were only just beginning to be lifted. These are therefore the earliest cities to develop via lateral sprawl made possible by the invention of the streetcar the early suburbs extended out in a, quote, star shape, end quote, from the city, following the rail lines, excuse me. Oh, okay, I butchered that sentence. Let me try that again. The early suburbs extended out in a, quote, star shape, end quote, from the city, following the rail lines, which would soon be superseded by highways capable of closing in the empty space between streetcar hubs. The result was that, by 1899, prior to the widespread adoption of the automobile, quote, the population density of 15 American cities was 22 persons per acre as compared to 158 for 13 German cities, end quote. Cheap, depopulated land allowed for an unprecedented extension of the city into the surrounding countryside. By the latter half of the 20th century, urbanization in America would become synonymous with sprawl, the outward pressure evident in the early streetcar suburbs was finally released with the widespread adoption of the automobile and federal support for the construction of a national road system, beginning with A programs in the 1920s and 30s, before reaching its apex in the construction of the interstate system after the Second World War. This fundamentally changed the interurban geography of the country, essentially beginning the decentralized explosion of the city out along transit and logistic corridors. Quote. Before 1920, there was no commerce along the highways between one city or town and the next, end quote. Instead, there was a, quote, staccato alternation of open countryside and discrete town borders, end quote. But the explosion of road infrastructure to accommodate the automobile, quote, changed the nature of highways, end quote, with new roadside businesses transforming them into, quote, a location of commerce, end quote, which would, in turn, prepare the ground for new waves of urban expansion. In the post-war period, these initial experiments in highway commerce were transformed into a sequence of massive real estate booms in which new housing developments of the more homogeneous type associated with quote, traditional, end quote, suburbia would dominate new construction accompanied by the green fielding of industrial, retail and service hubs nearer these centers. As the homogeneous and relatively affluent character of the post-war suburb has begun to collapse, however, the extension of logistics cores and other employment hubs has accelerated. Much of the industrialization in the cities of the New South is taking place in precisely these newly impoverished suburban zones where both land and labor are cheap. In fact, rather than the virtuous pan-urban density preached by the urbanists, quote, revitalization, end quote, projects seem more consistently to produce small, extravagant green zones jutting out of the unstable hinterland like the walled-off military outpost of an occupying army. Again, this seems simply to be the character of capitalist urbanization, in which the never-ending expansion of value is matched by the expansion of the city and its industrial exoskeleton. The body of value fixed in place is dead labor and the palaces of capital forfeited against the monstrosities of the machine that they held. That brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter, so let's have a reflection. So the process of urbanization is what stands out to me from the passages that we just read. I I found it very interesting to hear about the processes of the highways being created and the and how the highways being created allowed for these suburbs to then be created and how it allowed for the suburbs to be connected to these urban cores and how it also allowed for now some of these suburban areas to be able to be incentivized to try to make money into the, the high they talked about the highways becoming a place of commerce and and that reminds me of the, a book that I've recalled multiple times on this podcast series, The Color of Law, and reading about how highways and freeways were being created by tearing up portions of inner cities where a majority of black people lived and displacing those people. And I've said this before, and I'll say it again after I say it today, but one of the other benefits of consistently reading, consistently taking in different pieces of literature is... You, it, it it does the job of review, you know, because these things are in so much in the same wheelhouse, because we're taking our time to consciously pick certain pieces of literature to read. You always find some type of review within the new thing that you're reading that touches on the old thing that you read. And for me, that helps to solidify that information in my mind. It helps to solidify. It's a better word for that. Uh, retain it helps to retain the information in my mind and it also sparks my interest in learning about other unique events that have happened in in the with these issues we're reading about and so this sparked my mind to wanting to know more about these highways being built and freeways being built and and, and streets being built in in that process and that this time period here the 1920s and 1930s I think is a very important time period in understanding how our cities began to become be, be developed in the way that they they are developed. <clears throat> also found it interesting to read about this concept of sprawl as well and I highlighted a few things as we were reading through here and I want to just point out some of those things I highlighted. This sentence here. The same capitalist imperatives that built Shenzhen have also driven every stage of urbanization in the U.S. cities, after all. And it shouldn't be surprising that the urban structure of Los Angeles, Houston, Texas, or other sunbelt metropolises roughly mirror those of the other Chinese counterparts. And again, that's just doing the job of of reminding us the interconnection that all of these issues have even with people across the globe from us. And they spoke about as well, how, how much, and one of the things I've also taken away from this is just how difficult it is to try to urbanize these cities into in the, in the 21st century in an effort to, make these downtowns be lucrative again and hope for hope that the build, making these downtowns lucrative can have this residual effect of making the the city as a whole more lucrative. And, and again, I think that's important because this is something that is uniquely going on in Rockford, Illinois right now. And even though the majority in the majority of this book is about these rural areas, we have learned, uh, I've learned a lot about urban areas as well and urbanization as well, because of it being contrasted with these rural areas. And so I think sometimes you can read something that's about one thing and end up learning or taking away information about the opposing thing or the opposite thing because of the information you've been given about uh, this the, the topic at hand, if that makes sense. Okay. And, and this is the type of book where is probably very beneficial to read multiple times the language that the author is using they got some big sentences in his book it's a lot of concepts that I'm newly being introduced to and it's probably the book that I've read that touches the most on the economy and places and touches the most on the um, the finances what what drives, cities to do certain things and the financial implications that exist within within cities and with, within towns. Uh, so those are all things that just some of my takeaways. And now we only got a couple more pages left in this in this chapter. Let me see how much time we got left and decide whether or not we're going to knock this out. OK, it's going to make this episode a little bit longer, but we're going to knock out this last segment. Disintegration. In the winter of 2012-2013, I returned from Southwest China to the United States just in time to face my riot charges and be sent to the work release unit. This was also the period in which the nascent political scene in the city that had cohered around Occupy had entered its final stages of slow self-cannibalization. Nascent. Let me find the definition of that word. So it's pronounced nascent, excuse me, and it's an adjective, especially of a process or organization just coming into existence and beginning to display signs of future potential. Okay. By the time I got out of jail, the rent had doubled and most of the reasonable people had moved away or simply disengaged, leaving nothing but the wingnuts and identitarians with their blood feuds waged by ever smaller micro-factions. Little remained from those two or three wild years in which the potentials had at first seemed so limitless. In the end, I found myself back in those same inner ring suburbs where I had stayed years before. My cellmates and I never made it to Vegas, of course, not even Reno. That's how things go. The small fragments of the communal that were able to forge out of those extreme moments are then slowly, meticulously torn apart by the world. After jail, I eventually lost contact with them, saying that I was too busy when really my life was the same as theirs or yours, waking up too late, rushing to work to feed hours into some distant and hungry abstraction you can never quite see the shape of, and talking to how many people, really. Honestly, it was no different in Shenzhen, where I'd later meet workers at the Foxconn plant or neighboring factory cities who lived essentially the same sort of lives, despite our different positions within the global labor hierarchy. Our existence is disintegrated into a million minuscule atoms of exchange circulating between everything in a roofless hell of prices, profits and wages. All that's touched by this exchange begins to disintegrate into similar atoms cast across similar sprawls of infrastructure and faceless iterations of the same residential plot repeated indefinitely. The thing about poverty in these suburbs is that it doesn't look like poverty, just as class doesn't look like class. There are no overspilling, brick-built public housing towers, as in the inner-city ghettos of the past. But there is also nothing that looks much like the French Bonaloo or the British Council Estate. Instead, we have, quote, Main Street, end quote, the darling of every politician. These places still have the surface appearance of those uniquely American suburbs. Each house tucked quietly onto its own plot of land, no front porch even to mediate between the public and private. The cul-de-sacs of SeaTac do not immediately appear to be sites of brewing class war, but Ferguson, Missouri also looked nothing like inner-city St. Louis. It was instead a quaint heartland suburb, the epitome of social stability. In the, ide- in the ideological imaginary, such neighborhoods are still the hometown of the, quote, silent majority, end quote, the core demographic supposedly lending support to the American project. But then, at the height of the economic, quote, recovery, end quote, Main Street was burned to the ground. Underneath that surface appearance of stability, such spaces today signify a proletariat unified only in its separation. The economic ascent that made the suburbs into sites of working class upward mobility has disappeared, replaced now with the slow collapse. Today's normal thus inhabits the landscape of the past haphazardly. Poverty seems to disappear behind the picket fence. Class appears to dissolve in isolation. How many people, really, do we talk to in a given day? We talk to co-workers, customers, maybe crowds, depending on the job. Maybe it's one of those social positions, a teacher, a counselor, something in which you can at least lie to yourself for a while and say you're making some sort of impact, that you're at least able to connect with people. But those lies come harder when you've had some fragment of truly communal closeness, only to be thrown back into the world as it is, the material community of capital, where even our basic emotional connections are somehow mediated by that hostage situation we call the economy. It doesn't really matter if it's a riot, an occupation, or maybe just something preserved under the extreme circumstances of imprisonment and poverty. You can feel yourself losing it. After work, You go straight home to smoke some weed and watch a movie. Or maybe you see a handful of friends who somehow still feel distant, cycling through the bar or the club desperately to try to force that feeling back, as if it were a kind of narrow chemical deficiency instead of an expansive social devastation. You get home somehow in the darkness, the dull orange glow of those factories and warehouses backlighting the horizon. After the ashes pressure washed off Main Street, and walls are erected around the black skeletons of burnt-out buildings, the illusion of stability sets back in, only now more fragile, guarded by more police. The return to normalcy is never really a return to anything. Recognition of this fact is the only way you can escape the emotional ruin of these, quote, recoveries, end quote. Each time, less and less is actually recovered, and this leaves space for new, less controllable potentials. Behind the peeling pain of suburban stability, there are hidden sightlines aimed at the heart of the global economy. As Washington Highway 509 runs south from the Duwamish to the working-class suburbs, it stretches up a heavily forested ridge between the White Center and Burien. In recent years, this forest has become an intermittent homeless settlement filled with people fleeing the renewed sweeps and encampment closures that have accompanied Seattle's quote, revitalization, end quote. Many of the southern suburbs, where homelessness was previously a rare phenomenon, have seen massive spikes of people squatting or living on the streets. The result is a suburban forest filled with squatters perched above a bustling industrial valley. Planes descend onto the airstrips, container trucks load and unload, trains roll sluggishly across traffic-choked thoroughfares, all of it simultaneously chaotic and choreographed, just reckless enough to pose the question, how long before the center gives in again? Above, those tree-dwelling squatters peer down at the economy from which they've been excluded. Though it seems as though they are a mere handful of outcasts from the palace of the creative class, they themselves are really only the most visible forefront of that vast proletarian specter sealed out of sight for now in the warehouses and post-war homes of the new suburbia until Main Street burns again. And that brings us to the end of chapter three. And I think we're just going to let the words of Phil A. Neal be our final words for this episode. And I'm going to remind people that we put these episodes out on a daily basis to provide everyone the opportunity to begin or further their journey in the struggle against police, terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice. And I will holler at you tomorrow.